Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning, I'm Pastor Randy Lovelace. I serve here as pastor. I wanna welcome you if you're joining us on the live stream. I wanna welcome all of you who are here with us uh, this morning and uh, grateful to the Lord for his goodness and grace. And this morning, as we have been in this series, Behold Our God, as we're delighting in the Trinity and this fall we're looking at God the Father, we've been in for several weeks this passage from Exodus And this morning concludes our section of working through this passage as God clearly reveals who he is to Moses. And it's the first time he reveals himself uh, in the book of Exodus, but it does it in another place. But here, through a great expression, he pronounces his name Yahweh. And as we've looked together over these last several weeks, we've looked at the different characters, characteristics which God the Father reveals himself as Yahweh, and you'll hear it as I read through the passage this morning in Exodus 34. But we're finishing this section by looking at he is holy. And I will tell you that it's not that any sermon is any easier than another. Some do feel as though they have a greater weight to them. And so that's where I've been this week. And as I come to the text this morning, particularly because many have their own understanding of what the holiness of God is. And we have become comfortable at times with a, perhaps a simple definition, perhaps too simple. Others are afraid to talk about holiness for fear that we might turn others off. But it also is a a spectrum of understanding and of appreciation for the holiness of God and how, how do we wrestle with it. And so I do feel a particular weight this morning as I come to the passage which we have been in for the last few weeks. But I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit goes before me and is at work in his word and in the hearts of those who've gathered here and the Spirit is present in this place because two or more are gathered here in his name. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will uh, use the word of God to proclaim the glory of God for our good and growth in grace. So let's turn this morning to Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse four to verse seven. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. 
Father, just as the teacher of Hebrew proclaims, though the nation of Israel were gathered at the feet of Mount Sinai, we, as those who've been called to be your church in Jesus Christ, come to the flaming mountain of the glory of Christ. You, Jesus, have called to yourself a people that you've called your church. You, as Holy Savior and Messiah, are a part of the Trinity, Holy Father, Holy Spirit. But what does this holiness mean? And how are we to receive it? How are we to be changed by it? Father, will you show us? Help the teacher. May your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we look at this passage, we're going to see three descriptors, I believe. Some are the descriptors we bring, but some are clearly displayed, though the words themselves are not in the text. They describe his holiness. We see a beautiful truth. We see an uncomfortable truth, but we also see the greatest truth. The beautiful, the uncomfortable, and the greatest truth. Let's turn together. So when God reveals to Moses his name, Yahweh, and when he declares his nature, who he is, he describes holistically how he is revealing himself as we've looked at over these last number of weeks And when he announces, he says that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What is being described there is nothing short of the holiness of God in all of its beauty in all of its beauty. So what we must at least wrestle with is what definition do we come in to the word with and to worship with as we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What definition do we bring? And oftentimes the definition that we bring is God's moral or ethical perfection, his actions. But I would dare say oftentimes that is where we start and that is where we stop. In fact, we've turned it into a, in many ways, to a whole part of the history of the church. This idea that God is morally and ethically perfect and righteous and therefore we must prove to him that we too are holy. We need to be good girls and boys because what we've done is we've so narrowly defined holiness as God's ethical and moral character as being perfect, that is his holiness, that therefore we think that what we need to do is scare people into heaven and scare them away from hell by calling them to be good, holy, righteous girls and boys because your God is holy. But God's holiness is not less than that but it is a whole lot more than that that renders that whole message Worthless. What do I mean? The answer to what God's holiness is cannot be 
then we need to be good girls and boys because what we find is we can't make ourselves holy. Thanks be to God. Because if that's so, then we don't need Jesus. And we surely don't need God. But what we see here declared by God's self-revelation is not just his moral and ethical character. We see the beauty of his whole person. What we mean by this is there is this reality that all that God is in his essence, in his nature, but also in his actions, and all that extends from him is his holiness. He is literally, by the word holiness, set apart. He is other. Therefore, that which he does is set apart from everything. But it is not just his actions. It is all of his beauty and perfection. Therefore, when we hear the descriptors that God uses to describe himself, that means he is wholly compassionate. He is wholly gracious. He is wholly slow to anger. He is wholly faithful and loving and faithful and promises to maintain his faithfulness to thousands. He is holy in his forgiveness, but he is also holy in his wrath. All that God is, is holy. And the great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink used to describe God's holiness in this way, when he wrote these words, holy is that which has been chosen and set apart by God. That means that all that God does and that proceeds from him is also holy. And that which God makes holy, he divests it of all of its common character and provides special ceremonies in accordance with his laws prescribed for it. So therefore, Israel, called as God's people, are holy because God has chosen her and calls her to live in conformity with all of his laws, including ceremonial. Holy is that which in all things conforms to who God is in his nature. Holiness is perfection, not just in a moral sense, but in the comprehensive sense in which the unique legislation of Israel conceives it. That means that all that God is in worship, in his ethics, in the ceremonies that God calls forward, both in his internal and external workings, God is perfect and holy. And so when he calls Israel a people, they're not holy. Thanks be to God. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise and to shame the strong. He chose Israel not because she was holy, not because she was large, not because she was righteous, but because God chose to redeem for himself a people. And when he did, he called her holy. I will be your God and you will be my people. But beyond that, the whole arc of what God is doing in the scriptures. So when God calls Israel to himself, says, I am your God, you are my people, he gives them these two tablets of stone. The first five are how they are to lean on him and no other gods, to honor him in all their ways. 
The second half is what it means to live in conformity with this holy God in relationship to each other and to the world. But Israel failed in their following and dependence on the Lord, yet God in his mercy and grace over and over again redeems and renews them. But where do we come into that story? Where we come into that story is in the New Testament where we hear these words said of the church of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter. Speaking to the church, Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he says a few verses later, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's nothing particular, righteous or holy about the people that God calls through Jesus to be part of his church, his body, but rather it is God in his goodness and grace that does this work. But he nonetheless calls this body to him people. And he says, the church of Jesus Christ is a royal priesthood, a holy people, a holy body. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God in his holiness is completely other, transcendent, perfect in all of his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth and his love and kindness is holy and his loving kindness has found out the people of Israel and then through Jesus Christ he brings in the Gentiles and he makes for himself a royal priesthood this is what a holy God is doing so it is not up to you or me that makes us holy by our works or by our actions it is the Lord's work alone because he alone is holy. And as he draws you to himself, he makes you holy. God is worthy as we look at the narrative, the story of what God has done. He did not leave his holiness simply to be in the residence of his nature, but he shares it with all that he has made. And he calls us into relationship with him. And he makes you holy as you come to him. And he shows us in his grace and mercy what it means to be in relationship with him, how to live. That is a picture of God's grace. Just as Ikea has grace on me to show me how to make things by their instructions. <laughs> if all I did was receive an Ikea box with all their ridiculous names and their little things without any of the instructions, that would not be gracious. But because they show me how to do it and not even how to pronounce it, but how to do it, that's gracious. God in his grace shows us who he is and shows us how to live. But there is also an uncomfortable truth here. Because embedded within this passage are two things that seem contradictory. 
We hear of it in verse seven. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And we say, yes and amen. But then these words, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What is happening there? On the one hand, it says he's forgiving. On another hand, he says, we hear that he's going to judge. And the right question would be, how can a forgiving God also be a God who brings judgment and wrath? This is why it is important for us, if you are a believer, if you're in the church of Jesus Christ, and even if you are not a believer, how we understand scripture is that scripture interprets scripture. What seems like a contradiction here needs to be understood in the broader context. Because we've heard these verses before when the law of God was given in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. For we hear these words when they are read. In Exodus chapter 20, verse four, hear now these words. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am, jealous, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those, listen to this, who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. So it is not as though we get to Exodus 34 and God is capricious and unpredictable in his forgiving nature that he forgives, but then the next day he's just going to judge you. What is being talked about is this, and it is an uncomfortable truth. God judges sin when those who commit sin refuse to repent. What is being talked about there in the uncomfortable truth is God's holiness is a fearful thing in the face of those who refuse to repent. But for those who acknowledge their sin, who acknowledge their need of the righteous, perfect love and grace of God the Father, the grace of his forgiveness is received in full. But those who reject it face judgment. So it is not as though God is forgiving one day to me and then the next day showing wrath. No, rather, he's saying, for those who love me, for those who trust in me, for those who look to me for righteousness and grace, my forgiveness is complete and full and eternal. But for those who look at my grace and my mercy and reject it, there is righteous wrath. Here's an example. We hear it in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah comes to the house of the Lord, called by him, and these are the words we hear from which the hymn which we sung earlier gets its name. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, that is Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called 
to another and said, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So as he comes into the temple antiphonally, meaning responding to each other, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what happens to Isaiah in the face of the righteousness and holiness of God? He is undone. And we hear and see the picture of repentance. And he says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's confessing, he's repenting. And then the Lord responds, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Repentance brings grace and the Lord meets him with the cleansing of his redemption. And in that moment, not only is Isaiah forgiven, Isaiah is holy. But what happens in the face of rejection? This week in preparation for this sermon, I listened to a a teaching by Paige Brown on King Ahab. And King Ahab, if you're familiar with the story, in his kingship refused to honor God for who he was and sought at every point, at every point, to try to be good and then he was completely evil. And in his wife Jezebel, what they sought to do was to steal a vineyard that did not belong to them and stole it from Naboth because he's the king and he can do it. But when confronted by God, Ahab simply showed conviction. And yet God in his mercy, God in his mercy shows Ahab grace and mercy. But only a few chapters later, we see very quickly Ahab was merely convicted and not repenting. And he went about his ways and God judged him utterly by his wrath. And he received the consequences of his sin and of his lack of repentance. That is uncomfortable. Go and read about it. It is hard. And what is hard about it is we must come to terms with this reality that holiness is a terrible thing, terrible in its awesomeness and who God is, but it is also an opportunity for grace. If all the picture of God's holiness does is cause conviction, conviction merely leads us to feeling bad about ourselves. It doesn't lead to a changed life. But maybe you look at the holiness of God and aren't convicted at all. Maybe you look at it and you reject it altogether. And I I, I wanna quote my friend Paige Brown when she said, if God's holiness makes you uncomfortable, repent. Because those who have repented believe 
that God's holiness is real, but it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. But there is the greatest truth here. It is a truth that I cannot explain. For which a person asking the question, why does God allow good and evil to exist in the world? Why why does he simply allow Ahab a moment of mercy, but Naboth's life is snuffed out? And we're given these contrasts all over the place. One of those places is another king of Israel, King Manasseh. And in King Manasseh, we hear this. King Manasseh in 2 Chronicles, deep in the Old Testament. Go and read about it. 2 Chronicles 33. Go read this this afternoon. It, trust me, it's worth a read. Yeah, I heard that laugh. You got the joke. All right. So let me just put it this way. Manasseh, not a good king. Not a good guy at all. At every moment, he seeks to follow false gods. He brings in the, the temples of the false god and monuments to false gods and sets them right up, right in the middle of God's worship. He rebuilt the high places of his father, who was also a bad king. He demolished the good things and built altars to Baal. And Asherah poles, he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry host. He sacrificed his own children. I want us to sit for that for just a second. Why did God allow it? And if you are not a believer, and even if you are, if you read this text, it is right for us to ask how and why, God, do you allow this? My answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know why he allowed me to be a victim of evil. And many of you, but I also don't know why he has allowed my sin to go unjudged and yet give me a grace. I don't know, except the scriptures do not answer it fully. But the scriptures do tell us about this, that after all these things are true of Manasseh, we hear these words. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army of the commanders of king of Assyria. So God destroys everything that Manasseh had brought into being. And he made Manasseh a prisoner, put a hook in his nose and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. He put Manasseh on death row. He was allowing his holy righteousness and judgment to be seen allowed him to be dragged to Babylon and hooked his nose to bronze shackles. And it, is, it is, feels so good to go, yes. Next verse. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God 
of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Here is the story of the greatest truth of the holiness of God, and it is a story between two mountains. On Mount Sinai, God delivers in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, his character, his righteousness, and calls the people of Israel his own. And he gives them the law. And Moses is so bright with the glory of God that he cannot be seen by the people of God. And that law hung over Israel and they refused to fully repent. They would repent sometimes and God would relent and they would come back to him. And then they would reject him over and over again, up and down until finally there would be another mountain. And that next mountain is the mountain of Golgotha. Where all of the wrath all of the righteous anger of God towards sin and unrighteousness and evil was laid upon his own son, Jesus Christ. The greatest truth is that God sent himself to be under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus has paid for my sin, Manasseh's sin, your sin, and even, dare I say it, the sin of Jeffrey Dahmer, whose story is now popular again, but the story they won't tell is the story of his coming to Christ in a Bible study on death row. Now, maybe that is something we want to reject. Is God's grace so great that it can be poured out on some two-bit teenage kid in South Carolina becoming a Presbyterian minister as it does to a serial killer coming to Christ on death row. His grace is so great and his holiness so awesome that the world is full of his glory and his grace and he means to make us so. And that may be offensive. And if you're human, it probably is. And it is inscrutable. And yet our God reveals himself as a God who is holy and who is holy on the move. Because there will be a day when he comes again. And all that is evil will be undone. And all of his righteousness will be poured out. And those who have repented and come to his grace, serial killer and, or child, adult or young, poor and rich, all those who turn to him can receive his grace. But on that day, his righteousness will be poured out and you can know his grace today or know his wrath on that day. It would be professionally 
wrong for me not to tell you the truth, that he will come again and he is going to judge every single evil in the world and he will make it undone. And for all who have received him, for all who have believed in his name, for God so loved the world, those who he's drawn to himself will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. That which God begun, he will bring it to resolution and restoration for all those who reject him will go on forever not knowing him. Does this make us uncomfortable? Yes. But it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Today is a day of his grace. He has shown you, O man, what he desires, to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with our God. This is what he has done in Christ. This is what he is doing in Christ. And this is what he will do in Christ. For our Father is holy and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word for it is a weighty thing. And what you are doing is more marvelous in our eyes than we could ever imagine. And yet it is also a weighty thing because it is too great for us to understand. And yet you have told us that you are holy, but you love us with a holy love. That you've rescued us by that same holiness. That your wrath was poured out and your holiness was upheld. And on the third day, on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And we can now be brought to you in him. You, Father, are holy. You want to make us holy, for you are good. Help us, we pray, but also help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.